So turn in your Bibles to Zechariah chapter 9. That's uh, where we've got up to in our study. Just to remind you what we've seen, the first six chapters of the book of Zechariah really give us this uh, panoramic view, this vi- these visions, uh, eight, ten, however you count them, visions, looking from the time of Zechariah. So just to get the context here, this is 518 BC. This is when the Jews have returned. They've been back in their land for 19 years now after the Babylonian captivity. Haggai's come onto the scene and stirred the hearts of the people and they've rebuilt or started the rebuilding of the temple. And then two months after that, Zechariah steps onto the scene and he starts to stir the people spiritually and really challenging them into their, their walk with the Lord. And then we have these visions that really speak of what God is going to do amongst the nations and primarily with Israel. And really it's a very encouraging uh, scene that is painted by these visions. The underlying theme is that God loves Israel. He hasn't forgotten about the people that he called and chose. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, these unconditional promises that were made with them. And they still stand to this day. And God then gives Zechariah this understanding that he has chosen Jerusalem. His name was placed there way back in uh, the time of David and Solomon and so on. As Solomon dedicated the temple. And we looked last week at a number of those scriptures. And we see how God says that although there will be judgment upon Israel for their iniquity, for their disobedience, God ultimately would gather them back together in their land. And we saw that through those visions. And of course that God will then judge the arrogancy of the proud. And we'll see more of that as we move on this morning. Chapters 7 and 8, we see a kind of historical interlude amongst these prophetic elements. And we see these Jews go down to Bethel, the house of God. And they ask the question, well, when we were in Babylon, we used to fast, we used to mourn, you know, because of the destruction of the temple and all the things that had taken place. Gedaliah, one of the leaders that had been appointed by Nebuchadnezzar, he'd been assassinated in Jerusalem, and it was just a mess. And so they'd had these specific times that they'd fasted through that captivity. And now they say, well, do we need to keep celebrating these things? And really the response is, God is going to turn your mourning into feasting. Your fasts are going to be turned into feasts. The times that you used to celebrate and look back and say celebrate, that you used to commemorate what had happened in a negative sense, you'll look forward and you'll praise God for what he's going to do. And then we move now into this latter part of the book from chapters 9 through 14. And a lot of commentators kind of break it down. It's not strictly speaking the first 9, 10, 11 are dealing with the first advent, but in a sense there's an element of that. And then from chapter 12 to 14, it is very much the theme looking at the second advent. Okay, so the first coming of Jesus, the second coming of Jesus. And of course the Jews don't understand. They still haven't grasped as a nation that the Messiah would come twice. There was various ideas that have been postulated by rabbis through the centuries that maybe there'd be two messiahs because Isaiah speaks about a messiah that's going to suffer. And yet other passages, Psalm 2 and elsewhere, speak about a Messiah who's going to rule and reign. 
Well, of course, there's not two messiahs. There was two comings. Jesus, the Messiah, first came to suffer, to give his life as a ransom for many, and then he will return as the King of Kings. And we see it beautifully laid out with the Christmas narrative, which is so tragically misunderstood and destroyed by tradition. But, of course, we have the shepherds. They speak of the Lamb of God. The first time Jesus came was as the Lamb of God to offer his life as that sacrificial lamb, his blood was shed. And then after the shepherds, sometime later, the magi come. And the magi come to anoint Jesus as king. And the whole of that Christmas narrative, it speaks of the first coming, the second coming. When the magi come, they anoint Jesus as the rightful king of the Jews. And when Jesus returns, the second time he will establish his throne in his kingdom. And he will rule on earth through what we refer to as the millennium. It's an idea that we get from Revelation chapter 19 and 20. But really, all the detail comes from the Old Testament. The only thing we really get from Revelation 19 and Revelation 20 particularly, I think six times in the beginning of Revelation 20, we have this idea of a thousand years. But all the detail comes from the Old Testament. It's not a New Testament concept. Throughout the Old Testament, it speaks of the time when the Messiah the one who would come of David's line, would sit on the throne of David and rule over Israel, rule over the whole earth. You don't have to look in books like Daniel and you'll see very clear prophecies to the kingdoms of this world being put down and the kingdom that God will establish being set up and ruling over the whole earth. So this is the section we're moving into then. So from chapter 9 through 14, we'll see if we can take 9 and 10 this morning. Chuck Mizzler Put it this way, he said, the scope of this final section, 9 to 14, is the same as the visions of 1 to 6. Okay, so we're getting an overview. And he says, uh, from Zechariah's time, so that's again from 518 BC, to the establishment of the kingdom over Israel in blessing. Alluding to Acts 1, 6, where Jesus spoke about the time that the kingdom would be given to Israel. The disciples asked that question. As Jesus is about to ascend, will you at this time restore the kingdom? And Jesus effectively says, not yet. It's not the right time. The Lord knows the time. God the Father knows the time. But now is not the time. And we will talk about some of the reasons why. And again, Chuck says here, uh, the time the fasts become feasts. That's the hope that they have. That's what Zechariah, that's what the Lord through Zechariah was saying to the people. So once again, in those first six chapters, the visions we saw were laying out history, looking at various elements. It's not strictly chronological, but there's a chronological theme to that, that one thing follows another, follows another, that from the time of Zechariah, certain things would take place leading up to, ultimately, the kingdom age. And now we're going to see in these last six chapters, the same ideas amplified and different elements drawn out from those things in a prophetic uh, way. So we're going to jump into uh, chapter 9. Let me just read this quote also from Chuck Minister. He said, Many of the more competent commentators suggest that this section has a double application, setting forth the immediate and also yet future judgment upon the kingdoms surrounding Israel. All right? That's not an idea that should be strange to you. There are many prophecies that have a local application, something that was specific at that time in history. The prophet spoke, and there was a real event, a real situation, and the prophet spoke concerning that. And yet also we see a picture of what is to come. And it's a theme we see, this kind of double application or double fulfillment to prophecy. 
We see it in the book of Daniel, for example. Daniel speaks of uh, a little horn. Um, and he speaks of a ruler. Uh, the horn is the idea of a st- strength. Somebody's going to be raised up. And Daniel speaks of a character that we know from history called Antiochus Epiphanes. And in 167 BC, he desecrated uh, the temple, and sacrificed a pig on the altar and so on, and set up an, an image of himself and these kind of things. And there was a historical application to the things that Daniel records. And yet at the same time, it's also looking forward. That's a dress rehearsal of what is to come. When another character that we typically know as Antichrist, yet to come, will do the same kind of thing. He will set up an image of himself in the temple, the rebuilt temple, the temple that will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. And he'll do the same kind of things. So we see a number of these, kind of a, a dress rehearsal and then the real thing, like a matinee performance and then the, the full performance. And there's many examples of that that we can see throughout Scripture. The first eight verses of this chapter we're going to look at, uh, we really see the campaign of Alexander the Great. So this is the local application. This is what actually took place. And we'll talk about some of the, the history and I'll try and keep it simple. I love history because right? this is so much we see of God's working and manipulating or engineering circumstances. So we'll see Alexander the Great um, portrayed and detailed in the things he was going to do. And bear in mind, with somewhere these prophecies seemingly later in Zechariah's life, but certainly way before. So again, just to give you the time frame, Zechariah roughly 500 years before Jesus. Alexander the Great, who we're going to be talking about, some 300 years approximately before Jesus. So 200 years before these events, Zechariah's recording them. That's staggering. Just try and think of what the world would be like. You probably will be you know, in heaven with the Lord or the millennium by then, but that aside, what would the world be like in 100 years from now? You can't even begin to imagine. I mean, think of the technological changes we've seen even in the last 20 years. As I've often said, my, my girls look at me with astonishment when I talk about days when we didn't have a mobile phone. You know, and I, I mention things like libraries, and they look at me blank, you know. A, a library is something on a computer where your files are stored, isn't it, or something? You, know. but you see how the world has changed. You know, I remember seeing my grand doing the washing by hand, and that was just a very normal thing. Who does that today? You know, just just simple practical things in our lives have changed dramatically in just a short space of time. We can't imagine what the world would be like, let alone imagine the political landscape. What would the world be like in a 100 years from a political perspective if the Lord doesn't intervene? So it's staggering when you look at the scope of the prophecies we have in the Bible that speak hundreds of years into the future with clarity. And we have the great benefit now. Uh, Tommy, um, the pastor from Calvary Chapel Hastings, who was speaking yesterday at the conference, mentioned that actually we've probably got a better understanding of prophecy than at any time in history because we've got so much of history to look back on and see how so many things have been fulfilled. The first uh, seven verses, we're going to get the successes, if you like, of Alexander the Great. Uh, And then in verse 8, the deliverance of Jerusalem. And uh, bear with me because I'm going to be kind of pulling some notes of different things as we go through uh, this study. But let's just start. Verse 1, it's a good place to start, isn't it? The burden of the word of the Lord. That's an interesting statement, isn't it, in itself? The burden of the word of the Lord. This is something that, is, in a sense, weighs heavy on God's heart. You never, ever look at 
scriptures that speak of judgment and see it that God enjoys doing this. God does not delight in the death of the wicked. That's what we're told in the book of Ezekiel. God would much rather that people repent and turn from their sin. But God is a just and a righteous God. And God has to bring justice and judgment. Otherwise, he wouldn't be a good God. So it's interesting, you read these expressions, it's easy to read over that. The burden of the word of the Lord. It's not a burden to you and I, it's a burden to the Lord. But the Lord is speaking these things to Zechariah to share with the nation. The burden of the word of the Lord in the land of Hadrach and Damascus. I'll show you a map in a minute to give you an idea of geographically where we're talking. So these are talking about neighbors of Israel. That God is going to judge because of their pride. Now that's the local application and we'll see that Alexander the Great was very much the, the principal agent that God used to bring this judgment at that time. But it's also speaking ahead of what will come. And the way that God will judge the nations today in the world because of their pride and arrogancy. So again, uh, the land of Hadrach and Damascus shall be the rest thereof when the eyes of a man as of all the tribes of Israel shall be toward the Lord. There's going to be an acknowledgement that the Lord is working, that the Lord is doing this. You know, the destruction is going to be such that people are going to look to God and say, wow, this is God doing this. You know, we see that in the beginning of the book of Revelation. As God starts to pour out his wrath on earth, people recognize that it's God that's doing it. The crazy thing is that they don't repent, but they recognize that God is doing it. Verse 2, And Hamath also shall border thereby Tyrus, or Tyre, as we're familiar with it, and Zidon, though it be very wise. And we'll talk a little bit about Tyre and Sidon in a moment. Tyre particularly. Tyre was a, a place um, that was militarily very sure and strong. The Assyrians had tried for five years to breach and destroy Tyre, and they failed. Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonians, had tried for I believe it was uh, 13 years, and they'd failed. So they were quite comfortable. If the Assyrians and the Babylonians couldn't defeat them, what else was there? So they had this, this statement, that though it would be very wise, it's speaking of, the, in a sense, their, their self-belief and confidence they had. And Tyrus did build herself a stronghold and heaped up silver as the dust, and fine gold, and the mire of the streets. It's a sea port. And they'd amassed a great amount of wealth. And you can dig into this more if you want to read through the commentaries or look at the other history. I'll spare you for now. But they, they had amassed all sorts of wealth. So just as is being declared here, this indeed was fulfilled prophetically. Okay, Hamath was the principal city of Upper Syria on the river uh, Orontes. Just to give you an idea on a map where these things are. So we're familiar with Israel and Judah in this section. And then it's above to the north of Israel. You've got Sidon, you've got Tyre, and then Damascus. Interestingly, in Isaiah, it says that Damascus would one day be destroyed and never be rebuilt. Not sure if you've looked at Damascus recently. But we're living in a time when those prophecies are being fulfilled. Damascus is a ruinous heap right now. So 
That's not what we're talking about this morning, but I just share that because it's pertinent to the, the comment here. Verse 4 goes on, Behold, the Lord will cast her out, and he will smite her power in the sea. As I said, she was a seaport. She traded via the sea and become very wealthy. But it's saying God is going to bring his judgment and justice, and she shall be devoured with fire. And then it's going to go on and speak about Ashkelon and various others. Ashkelon being one of the principal cities of the Philistines. Gaz also shall see it and be very sorrowful. And Ekron, for her expectation, shall be ashamed. And the king shall perish from Gaza. And Ashkelon shall not be inhabited. Now, I'm just going to read to you from one of the commentaries, just a couple of notes on this. Okay, so prophecy against the Philistine strongholds in 5-7 to in southwest Palestine indicates the conqueror's victorious sweep in Egypt. So Alexander was coming down, heading towards Egypt, but en route he took out everyone and everything uh, that was in his way. Uh, and he says, the fate of Gaza is fully recorded in Alexander's annuals after its five-month siege. Like Tyre, it dared to resist because of its strength, but suffered a violent destruction. And it goes on from there. So there's, there's various historical records that you can refer to that, that show the, the fulfillment of these things prophetically. But I just want to focus for a second on Tyre, um, because there's a huge amount in Scripture about this place. Now, Tyre is synonymous with pride in the Bible. Uh, just turn with me, if you will, to Ezekiel chapter 28. Ezekiel 28, you may be familiar, is a passage that speaks about the king of Tyre. But then it goes beyond just the the local application, and we see unveiled the power behind the king of Tyre, which is none other than Satan himself. Verse 12 of Ezekiel 28, we read this. Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyre, and say unto him, Thus says the Lord God, And you see straight away this is going beyond just a mortal human being. He says, Thou sealest up the psalm full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of God. Well, I'm pretty sure that the king of Tyre wasn't there because I've read Genesis and there's no mention of the king of Tyre in Eden. We see the power behind the king of Tyre. He was the one that was in Eden. And if if you're familiar with the Genesis account, there's only four, effectively, that are mentioned. There's God. Father, Son, and Spirit. There's God who walks with Adam in the garden. There's obviously Adam and there was Eve. And there was one other. There was Satan. So this is a reference clearly here to Satan that we go on. Thou has been in Eden, the garden of God. Now this is a really important thing. Every precious stone was thy covering. The sardis, the topaz, the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire... The emerald, the carbuncle, the gold, and the workmanship of thy workmanship of thy tablets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Now look at verse 14. Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth. Cherub, cherubim is a particular class of angels, seemingly one of the, the highest ranking from what we read in scripture. And I have set thee so that was upon the holy mountain of God. And has walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. And verse 15 says, Thou was perfect in all thy ways from the day thou was created. Now, there's an until there. We've mentioned untils. Again, let me say, when you find an until in Scripture, mark it. They're all significant. This is one of them. This is saying that Satan was perfect. He was created as a perfect being. He was in Eden in a perfect state. 
He has access to walk before the throne of God in an incredibly exalted, privileged position. He seemingly had these musical instruments built into his very being. Many have suggested that Satan was responsible, or Lucifer, as he was known at that point, was responsible for the worship in heaven, leading the other angels in worshiping God. That was perfect in all their ways from the day that was created until iniquity was found in thee. Something happened, something changed. I think this is hugely significant. I think it makes immense sense of so many other areas of Scripture, if you just get this right. God created the heavens and the earth. It was amazing. It wasn't just pretty good. It was the best it could possibly have been. Imagine the angelic host watching on. We're told in the book of Job that the, the sons of God, the, the, they, they sang as God was creating. And as God is creating everything, there must have been a conversation taking place among the, amongst the angels. Who is God creating this for? There's various legends and things that suggest that various angelic powers were given dominion or rule over certain planets. Whether that's the case or not, there's nothing in Scripture that confirms that, but that was a belief that was held. And as God creates the earth and he's doing this incredible work, the question is, who is this for? And no doubt, Satan, as being the the most exalted of all the angels, is probably thinking to himself, well, who else would God like to honor except me? Do you know the book of Esther, I believe, is a model of all of this and the situation with Haman? You know, Haman goes in and the king says, you know, what what should the king do to the man he would like to honor? And what does Haman do? He thinks, that's got to be me, isn't it? See, pride in his heart. And he gives the king an account, well, the king should give him his ring and clothe him with his robe and send him out on his horse. And, of course, the king does that for Mordecai and it infuriates Haman. And this is one of the most comical uh, portions of scripture. But here, there's nothing funny about this. This is Satan looking on, going, surely this is mine. And what happens on day six of creation? God creates man. And you know, there's something very significant. There's a very similar passage to this in Isaiah 14. We won't go there now, but by all means, take it and read it. Isaiah chapter 14. And we're told there that one of Satan's uh, frustrations, one of the things he claims is that he wants to be like God. Some have tried to suggest that Satan wants to be God. I don't believe Satan's that stupid. He knows he can't be God. God is the creator. Satan's not. But what did God do when he made man? He made him in his image and likeness. Adam was made like God. Adam was then given dominion over the earth. And Satan, I believe, from what we read in Scripture, was so jealous and envious that this created being that wasn't in any way like an angel, and yet had something angels couldn't have and couldn't do, in the fact that he was made like God, Adam was made like God. And Satan craved that. Satan wanted to be like God. And so Satan then usurps man's authority, takes dominion and control of this world, which is what he wanted. And that's exactly what we're told in Scripture, that for now Satan has this world. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's the god of this world. Even when Jesus is tempted in the wilderness, and we have the situation where Satan offers Jesus the kingdoms of the world, Jesus doesn't go, well, you can't offer me them, you don't have them. No, Jesus acknowledges that Satan is in the position to offer the kingdoms of the world because for now he's stolen them and taken them from Adam. The great end of the story is that just as another model we have in the book of Ruth, there is a kinsman redeemer. Although 
Elimelech's family had lost everything. And Naomi comes back into the land with nothing. There was a kinsman. There was a family member who has the right to purchase back the land that had been lost. And we have a kinsman, a descendant of Adam, Jesus Christ, born of a woman, born into the human race. God manifest in flesh, and he has the right to purchase back this earth. And in Revelation, we see the culmination of all of that. As Jesus wrests this world out of the control and out of the hand of Satan, and with this great statement that we're told, that the kingdoms of this world have now become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. Jesus will take back control of this earth. For now, this world still lies under the sway of the wicked one, is what John tells us. So that's the career of Satan. That's what we're told about Tyre and, again, the power behind Tyre. And he goes on. You can read those scriptures, but I'll just turn a few pages back in the book of Ezekiel. Now, I'm just going to just read. um, I'm just going to use Joshua Dow's evidence that demands a verdict. Um, But in chapter 26 of Ezekiel, we've got a number of things. Verse 3. Uh, it says, therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring up many nations against you as the sea brings up its waves. Okay, so that's a statement. It's a prophetic statement that God is saying in the book of Ezekiel what he's going to do. I, I apologize. Did I say, uh, no, it's right. sorry, it's right. Ezekiel 26. Um, yeah. Uh, the verse 4 goes on. And they will destroy the walls of Tyre and break down her towers, and I will scrape her debris from her and make her a bare rock. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring upon Tyre from the north Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, king of kings, with horses, chariots, cavalry, and a great army. That we know took place. But there's a number of prophetic things that are being said. I'm going to review them in a second. Verse 8. He will slay your daughters on the mainland. With the sword, and he will make siege walls against you, cast up a mound against you, and raise up a large shield against you. Verse 12 goes on. Also, they will make a spoil of your riches and a prey of your merchandise, break down your walls and destroy your pleasant houses, and throw your stones and your timbers and your debris into the water. These are really specific prophecies. I mean, no man would be stupid enough to try and make statements like this. Because you've got no way of making these things come to pass hundreds of years from the time. Verse 14, And I will make you a bare rock, and you will be a place for the spreading of nets, and you will be built no more. For I, the Lord, have spoken, declares the Lord God. Verse 21, I shall bring terrors on you, and you um, will no, uh, be no more. Though you will be sought, you will never be found again, declares the Lord God. Okay, some specific predictions. Nebuchadnezzar is going to destroy the mainland city of Tyre. Many nations are going to be against Tyre. They're going to make her a bare rock, flat like the top of a rock. Fishermen are going to spread their nets over the site. They're going to throw debris into the water that is never going to be rebuilt and is never going to be found again. Hugely powerful prophecies about this place. And again, the context of this is God is showing Zechariah and the children of Israel that these arrogant nations around that have rejected God or anything to do with him, that God will bring judgment upon them. That was the local application. In the future, we will see it take place to the nations of this world. The incredible prophetic side of this in the local context was that we've already seen, I mentioned already that Nebuchadnezzar did come indeed against Babylon. Uh, sorry, did come against Tyre. And there was a siege for 13 years or so. 
but they weren't successful. They did bring Tyre under their control, but they couldn't uh, defeat the city. It was almost impregnable. And in fact, when they got there, what they found was that Tyre had moved from the city on the mainland out to this little island just off the shore, and they'd rebuilt their home, their city, and it was almost impregnable. These walls went up at the side. You couldn't attack it by sea, and you couldn't attack it by land because it was too far away from the land for anybody to actually get to it. So it can be a real problem. And eventually Nebuchadnezzar just gave up on the challenge. Well, of course, after Nebuchadnezzar came the Persians. The Persians tried, they failed. But then we come to the time of Alexander and the Greeks. And Alexander was just so infuriated that these Tyans, what would you call them, them, people from Tyre, wouldn't submit to his authority and his rule. He defeated everything. I mean, you know the speed at which Alexander conquered the world. I think by the age of 33, he'd conquered the known world. And so what he does, he goes to the rubble that was left there in the streets and so on, and he just scrapes it literally from the old city, just as the prophecy has said. The, the old city was scraped, it was left as bare rock, and put it all into the sea. And he built this causeway out to this island. And it's still there to this day. And, and, and this is the way they then got to the city, and they were able to conquer and destroy the city. Now, after the time of Alexander, there were various other uh, elements involved in this uh, over the next few hundred years. But eventually, what was left of Tyre was completely destroyed, even this bit of the, this bit on the sea. And it ended up being a place in a harbour, because the way it was being built and all this, this rubble had been put in the sea, it became a shelter and it became an ideal place for fishing boats. It became a little fishing village. Not, not the same place, but just in the same location. And so it became a place where the fishermen would just hang their nets on the rocks to dry out. It's incredible fulfilment of prophecy given hundreds of years before the events actually took place. So I just share that with you because it's fascinating. It's really worth doing a little bit of uh, historical uh, research, looking at those passages, I say. Particularly, you want to read Ezekiel 26, because uh, that gives you all the detail of these things. Um, but it really is incredible. It goes on, verse 6, and it's speaking now of the destruction of Tyre, and then it goes on to the Philistines, and it says, A bastard shall dwell in Ashdod, for I will cut off the pride of the Philistines. And there's various ideas behind this. It's talking about um, a stranger is the idea uh, behind this. Some have suggested, again, this is speaking of Alexander the Great because of the questions regarding his parentage. Uh, was he really the son of Philip of Macedon or not? And there's, there's questions about that. Um, others have suggested that there's uh, more at play here, uh, Nephilim involved, all sorts of ideas. Uh, it could simply be that life is so disrupted that there's nothing normal, that family life won't exist in the same way. Okay. And God is going to cut off the pride of the Philistines. Well, we know that's been the case because there are no Philistines we bump into today. And I will take away his blood out of his mouth. Speaking of the violence and so on. And his abominations between his teeth. But he that remaineth, even he shall be for our God. So notice straight away, as we see in so many portions of scripture, there's immediately a division here. The ones that God is bringing judgment upon, and the ones that are for God. He that remaineth, he shall be for our God. And he shall be as a governor in Judah and Ekron 
as a Jebusite. And this is leading into what we then read in verse 8, and I will encamp about mine house because of the army, because of him that passeth by, and because of him that returneth, and no oppressor shall pass through them any more, for now I have seen with mine eyes. Okay, so this is speaking of Alexander the Great as he comes down from Tyre, and he comes down through defeating the Philistines, and he gets to Jerusalem, but he doesn't defeat Jerusalem. And there's interesting comments about things Alexander was shown prophetically by the shown the writings of Daniel, and he recognized himself in these things and spared Jerusalem. There's various uh, things that are put out there. But for whatever reason, Jerusalem is not destroyed at this point. God protects them. But then we get on to the kingdom. Because God is preserving his people for something yet to come. And God says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. So, right, so let's just get the context. God is saying judgment is going to come upon the Gentile nations around Israel because of their pride and their arrogancy. Historically, it's happened once. It's going to happen again. And then we come to the statement that the king is coming. This is the Messiah. Behold, thy king cometh unto thee. He is just. Oh, don't we want a just king on this earth now? Having salvation. I mean, people recognize, the Jews have immediately recognized this deliverance. They may not necessarily have been thinking of salvation from sin. They're recognizing as it as deliverance from oppression of every sort. And sin, of course, is the greatest oppression. Lowly, there's a humility. Something beautiful and wonderful. I'm riding upon an ass, upon the colt, the foal of an ass. Now, interestingly, when kings typically came in a time of peace, they would ride on a a donkey. Solomon, we see as an example of that, when he becomes king. But if it was a time of war, typically they'd be seen on a horse. Interestingly, the first time Jesus comes, and you'll recognize that this is just what we're told in Luke 19, as Jesus rides in to Jerusalem. The triumphal entry, Palm Sunday, we refer to it. As Jesus rides into Jerusalem, he comes to bring peace. But when Jesus comes to the second coming, was he riding a horse? Because he's coming in war to set up his kingdom to judge this world. And this is an incredible prophecy because once again, some 500 years before the event, we have a statement of what was filled precisely by Jesus. That Jesus did ride into Jerusalem in this way. It was the only day in Jesus' entire ministry that he presented himself to Israel, to Jerusalem, as their king. After the feeding of the 5,000, we're told that people wanted to come and take Jesus and make him king, but Jesus wouldn't let them. He just kind of slips through the midst of them and just, just disappears into the crowd. After the miracles Jesus pronounced, people wanted to just declare his, his greatness and, and he just, see thou tell no man. After the first miracle he does, the water into wine at Cana in Galilee, Jesus says, my time is not yet come. And all the way through the Gospels we see the same thing right up until Saturday night, the Sabbath evening, or as the Sabbath was ending. And Jesus is in Bethany. Jesus makes that declaration, my time has come. My hour has come. And it's the very next day. In fact, it's the same day in the Jewish calendar because the Jewish day begins in the evening. The same day, Jesus then rides into Jerusalem and presents himself as king. 
And the other staggering thing, and we won't go into it this morning, but it's the fulfillment to the very day as prophesied by Daniel in Daniel chapter 9. Daniel has said the day the king would come. Gives us a mathematical formula to calculate exactly when the king would come. There was no reason that Jews should have missed when their king should come. It was precisely 173,880 days. But they missed it. They were ignorant of prophecy, as I would say much of the church today is ignorant of prophecy, although we have probably a greater understanding, as I was saying, uh, Tommy mentioned yesterday, and I totally agree with his statement. I think we do have a better understanding of prophecy than probably any time during church history because of the things we see and understand now. And yet so much of the church is ignorant of these things. And God holds the Jews accountable for not knowing the time of their visitation. That's what we're told in Luke 19. You need to do a good study of Daniel chapter 9 to fully understand the details, but Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the very day that had been prophesied. And verse 10 goes on, And I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim, and the horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace unto the heathen, and his dominion, speaking of the Messiah, and his dominion shall be from sea even to sea. The whole earth is going to come under the rule of the Messiah. And from the river even, we're told, to the ends of the earth, it's talking about the Mediterranean Sea to the Euphrates. That was the, the land territory that had been promised to Abraham. As for thee also, by the blood of thy covenant, I have sent forth thy prisoners out of the pit, wherein is no water. I'm just going to pause again for a moment here on verse 12. This is a verse that many years ago I read, and it really struck me. Turn you to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. All right, so the context is that the nations are going to be judged, but God is going to preserve Jerusalem. The Messiah, the king, is going to come to Jerusalem. He's going to rule over the whole earth. And then a comment to those who are waiting for that to happen. Turn you to the stronghold, or return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. You know, people are prisoners to all sorts of things. Some people are prisoners to fear. Some are prisoners to anxiety. Some are prisoners to the way the world expects you to be. And we get into a place where we feel we have to conform. That list can go on and can go on. But we're prisoners of hope. I love that expression. It's as if we're constrained by hope. It's as if you know, we're falling, we may be in a state where everything around us seems just haphazard, random and chaotic, and yet we can never get away from that knowledge that God is on the throne. We have hope. We can never completely lose sight of the fact that one day God will sort everything out. It's a statement that Job makes. But I know that in my flesh I shall see my Redeemer, because my Redeemer lives. Whatever happens to me now, yeah, yet though he slay me, I will trust him. Why can Job say that? Because he was a prisoner to hope. And all that he'd gone through, it was one thing he could never shake, because he just knew that God was God and God was good. And it's the same for each of us. We may go through very difficult times. Some people refer to it as night seasons, others the dark time of the soul, whatever expression you want to put on it. But we go through difficult times in our life as Christians. But we can never, ever get out of this grip of hope. Because once you know Jesus Christ, you have hope. 
However bad things are, however difficult life becomes, we have hope. And it may only be just a small glimmer of light, but it is still there. It's always that hope that is not going to be like this forever because our home, our citizenship is in heaven. It's not on this earth. I challenge you, whenever you go through those moments, you may be in a place of rejoicing right now. That's great. But there will be a time that you go through one of those valleys. You may be in one of those valleys right now. You'll never shake that hope. You are a prisoner of that hope. I love that expression. It's as if hope has got hold of you and will not let you go. But notice the statement. What are we to do? We're prisoners of hope. We're held by hope. Return to your stronghold. Where's our stronghold? Jesus Christ. You you know, Psalm 40 speaks of our feet being taken and put on the rock. Let me find, let me just, just read to you. It's so, uh, so encouraging. You know the scriptures, I'm sure, but I waited patiently for the Lord and he inclined unto me and heard my cry. He brought me up also out of a horrible pit out of the miry clay, and set my feet upon a rock and established my goings. He has put a new song in my mouth, even praise to our God. Many shall see it and fear and shall trust in the Lord. Blessed is the man that maketh the Lord his trust and respects not the proud nor such as turn aside to lies. And it goes on. Read the psalm. It's a great psalm. They're all great. I love this. Turn to the stronghold. That's where we need to go. We need to, as we shared earlier, that verse from 1 Samuel 13, encourage yourself in the Lord. That's the place to go. Return to the stronghold, you prisoners of hope. Even today do I declare that I will render double unto thee. Oh, that just fills my heart with joy. I've told you already this, this expression, this you know, rendering double. It's an exact likeness. Again, you look in a mirror, you see a double of yourself. Israel were told they were going to receive double for their sins. That's not times two. That's an exact likeness. They would repay for everything they've done. That's what the Lord promised them through their disobedience. If they walked with the Lord, there'd be blessing. If not, there would be judgment. And But the Lord says, and this is, of course, to the Jews, but it's also to you and I, because God is the God who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's without partiality. God's promise is to render double. God will restore. God will restore those years that the locusts have eaten. You may not see it right now. You know, I love, really love the account of Joseph. I mean, it's one of the most wonderful narratives in the Bible, isn't it? But it's the fact that Joseph is going through this difficult time with his family. He's sold into slavery. He's sold into Egypt as a slave. Everything seems to be going up, and it's wonderful. And then suddenly he's accused of a crime he didn't commit. He's put in prison, and he's there for a number of years. And there's this glimmer of hope as the butler and the baker come in, and he speaks to them, and he says, "Well, you know, to the um, to the butler, you know, we'll, we'll give good word to the king." For two years, he's forgotten, even after all of that. But then one day, the king has a dream, and the butler goes, ah, "I'm so forgetful. I meant to tell you, king." There's a person in prison who can interpret dreams. And they go and bring Joseph out and they wash him, they clean him, they get him before the king. And Joseph becomes the most powerful man in the whole kingdom. I don't think Joseph ever looked back and went, Lord, why did you do this? In fact, we know he didn't because when the brothers come, he says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. You see, God is a faithful God. God is a just God. And we may feel at times as if things are being stripped away from us, that we're losing everything. 
Just trust God. Return to the stronghold. Go back to that place where you know in your heart, where you can't get away from, because as a believer, you can never shake, because you are a prisoner of hope anyway, you can never shake that knowledge that God is in control. You can try and pretend for a while it's not there, but it doesn't change the fact that you know. God says, I'll render double unto you, an exact likeness. When I have bent Judah for me, fill the bow with Ephraim and, Ephraim, and raised up thy sons, O Zion, against thy sons, O Greece, and made thee as a sword of a mighty man. And the Lord shall be seen over them, and his arrow shall go forth as the lightning of the Lord God shall blow the trumpet and shall go with the whirlwinds of the south. And we seemingly are looking now, we've jumped somehow 2,000 years of history where the church sits, this time where the Gentiles are being brought in. That, that time from Palm Sunday, again Luke 19, where Israel's eyes were blinded. And Paul tells us in Romans chapter 11, that the reason Israel's eyes were blinded was so that the Gentiles can be brought in. And then when the Gentiles are brought in, then God starts again to conclude his work and his promises to Israel. And again, we're speaking about this time of the blowing of trumpets, and we, we can spend more time linking this and seeing how this fits in with Revelation. We go on to verse 15. The Lord of hosts shall defend them and should devour and subdue with sling stones. An interesting expression. We start to think about how the Lord is going to defend Israel in the days ahead when the nations of this world will gather themselves together. That's coming. We'll see that in Zechariah. But the nations are going to gather themselves together against Jerusalem to try and destroy Israel. But God's going to defend them. And they shall drink and Make a noise as through wine, and they shall be filled like bowls and as the corners of the altar. And the Lord their God shall save them in that day as the flock of his people, like sheep. God's going to care for them. For they shall be as the stones of a crown, the gemstones, the beautiful gemstones that are placed in a crown. That's how the Lord is viewing his people. Lift it up as a sign, an ensign upon his land. Notice the statement, upon his land. The land of Israel doesn't belong to anybody on this earth. It belongs to God. And God has entrusted it to the Jews, to the descendants of Abraham. For how great is his goodness, and how great is his beauty. Corn shall make the young men cheerful, and the new, uh, and new wine the maids. God is promising blessing. Okay, just give me a quick recap. So God was going to bring judgment on the Gentile nations around them because of their pride and arrogance. We see it the first time through, Nebu- uh, through Alexander the Great with Tyre, Sidon, and then the Philistines. Jerusalem is spared. And then it jumps onto the fact that God is going to bring the king who's going to establish his throne, and the nations of the world will be under the authority of the Messiah. And God is going to bring blessing upon his people. He's going to defend his people, even when the nations of the world are gathered against them. Let me just run through. Chapter 10, there's not a lot of comments, I just want to read this. Ask ye of the Lord rain in the latter, in the time of latter rain. And so the Lord shall make bright clouds and give them showers of rain to everyone grass in the field. It's just speaking, speaking now of God pouring his blessing upon them. After all they've gone through, all this, the hurt, the trials, that returning to its stronghold bit really starts to make sense now because God comes good on all his promises. For the idols have spoken vanity and the diviners have seen a lie and have told false dreams. They comfort in vain, therefore they went their way as a flock. They were troubled because there was no shepherd. That's the way it was. 
Mine anger was kindled against the shepherds, and I punished the goats. For the Lord of hosts has visited his flock, the house of Judah, and has made them as his goodly horse in the battle. Out of him came forth the corner, out of him the nail, out of him the battle bow, out of him every oppressor together. And they shall be as mighty men which tread down their enemies in the mire of the streets in the battle. And they shall fight because the Lord is with them. This is the promise to the Jews. And the riders on horses shall be confounded. And I will strengthen the house of Judah and I will save the house of Joseph. Okay, so Judah and Joseph. Joseph, again, Ephraim. So the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, the whole house saved. The whole nation. And I will bring them again to place them, for I have mercy upon them, and they shall be as though I had not cast them off, for I am the Lord their God, and will hear them. And they of Ephraim shall be like a mighty man, and their heart shall rejoice as through wine. Yea, their children shall see it and be glad, their heart shall rejoice in the Lord. I will hiss for them and gather them, for I have redeemed them, and they shall increase and have increased." And I will sow them among the people, and they shall remember me in far countries, and they shall live with their children and turn again. There's going to be a time that the world is just going to be overflowing with blessing, and it will come from Jerusalem. It will come from Israel, and will radiate throughout the whole earth. And I will bring them again also out of the land of Egypt and gather them out of Assyria. And these are just echoes of things that Isaiah says. Jesus uses these expressions too. And I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon and uh, the place shall not be found. Sorry. Uh, sorry. Yes. Let me read that again. Uh, and I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon and place shall not be found for them. And he shall pass through the sea with affliction. That's exactly what Israel have done. They've gone through that sea, as it were, the sea of the Gentiles. Sea often is uh, idiomatic of Gentiles in Scripture, the Gentile world. He shall pass through the sea with affliction and shall smite the waves in the sea. Uh, Hitting a wave doesn't do you a lot of good. But in the context of the Gentile nations, that makes more sense, doesn't it? And he shall smite the waves in the sea and all the uh, depths of the river shall dry up. And the pride of Assyria, you see it's linked to the nations here shall be brought down, and the scepter of Egypt Egypt shall depart away. We'll pick it up from there next week. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you that you're an incredible God who keeps your covenant with your people. And these promises that you made and revealed to Zechariah, that you made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and you reiterate here, you show your people through Zechariah that you are going to do something wonderful with them. Oh, Lord, we just thank you for these things. We thank you that we have hope, however dark things may seem, either in the world or in our own lives. We still have hope, and that hope is in our stronghold. It is in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Jesus, for the confidence that we can have in you, that when everything else is shaken, you are a rock upon which we can build. We thank you for these things, Lord. Just keep our hearts Keep our minds focused on you, set upon you, and our eyes looking unto you. Author and finisher of our faith, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.